Hello, this is Father Michael Eads from the Toronto Oratory, and you're listening to Lexio et Oratio, a short spiritual reading podcast followed by a reflection. The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis, Book 3, Chapter 54, on the opposition between the workings of nature and grace. Christ the Beloved, my son, you must carefully notice the ways in which nature moves and grace. These two ways are completely opposed, but not so fine and hidden as hardly to be told apart. Except by a spiritual man gifted with inward light, all men desire what is good and make out there is some good in whatever they do or say. That is why many people are taken in by a kind of good that is only so in appearance. Nature is crafty. Many are those she betrays, ensnaring and deceiving them, ever having her own ends in view. Grace makes her way unaffectedly, turning aside from everything that looks evil. She tries no trickery, but does everything simply for the sake of God in whom she rests, making him the end of whatever she does. Nature is loath to, put, to be put to death, to be repressed or overcome, to be obedient or to be a willing subject. Grace seeks to mortify herself, withstands the sensual feelings, seeks to be under authority, desires to be overcome, and has no wish to enjoy personal freedom. She loves being kept under discipline and has no desire to lord it over anyone else. All she wants is always to live, to remain, and to exist under God's direction. And for his sake, she is ready to submit humbly to every member of the human race. Nature works to advance her own interests, waiting to see how much gain will be coming to her from others. Grace, on the other hand, does not consider what may be of profit or advantage to herself, but what may benefit many. Nature is glad to receive honor and respect. Grace faithfully ascribes all honor and glory to God. Nature is afraid of disgrace and scorn. Grace is glad to suffer the shame for the name of Jesus. Nature loves taking it easy, loves giving the body rest. Grace cannot be unoccupied, but is glad to take up some work. Nature collects rare and beautiful things and disdains what is coarse and cheap. Grace is pleased with simple, humble things, does not look askance at what is rough or jib at dressing in old rags. Nature has her eye on worldly matters is cheered by material gain and grieved by its loss, and is stung to anger by the least unkind remark. But grace is concerned with what is eternal, is not attached to the things of time. The loss of her goods does not worry her, nor is she embittered by the harsh comments of others, because she has placed her treasure and her joy in heaven, where nothing is ever lost. Nature is greedy. She would rather have and, and receive then give, and holds on to her property with possessive love. Grace is kind and unselfish, believes in sharing, is quite happy with little and reckons that giving presents, and reckons that giving presents makes one happier than receiving them. Nature has a tendency towards creatures, towards a man's own body, as well as to foolish pastimes and unnecessary gadding about. Grace draws a man towards God and holy living. She renounces creatures, shuns the world, hates the lust of the flesh, 
cuts down occasions for wandering abroad, and blushes to appear in public. Nature is glad of an outward comfort that pleases the senses. Grace seeks comfort in God alone, and above all, that the eye can see takes pleasure in him who is the sovereign good. Everything nature does is for her own profit and advantage. She can never do any job for nothing, but hopes to have her services repaid in equal measure or by something extra, or else by praise or favor. She is anxious that people should set great store by all her deeds and donations, but grace seeks no reward in time. All the recompense she asks for is God alone, and she wants no more of the things man needs in this life than may serve her to obtain those which are eternal. Nature loves having a crowd of friends and relations and takes pride in her stately family seat and her distinguished pedigree. She puts on her best smile for those who have influence, says nice things to those with money, and approves of those who share her attitude to life. Grace is different. She loves even her enemies and does not boast of having a large number of friends. Stately homes and noble mirth mean nothing to her unless she finds greater holiness there. It is the poor she favors rather than the rich. Simple, good people she has more in common with than the influential. She likes those who say what they mean, not liars. She is always encouraging good people to aim at higher prizes and by their virtues to grow more and more like the Son of God. It is not long before nature starts grumbling when things are scarce or when trouble comes. Grace endures poverty as long as it lasts. Nature sees everything from her own selfish point of view. All her struggling and striving are for herself alone. Grace, on the other hand, refers everything to God, from whom it came in the beginning. She never attributes any good to herself or has the arrogance to presume it to be hers. She does not argue or put her own views before other people's. But in all that touches her senses and her understanding, submits to the eternal wisdom and the judgment of God. Nature wants to know secrets and hear news. She loves appearing in public and trying out any number of new sensations. She wants people to know her, wants to do something to win their approval and admiration. Grace, though, cares nothing for news and unusual things. She knows that all that kind of thing comes from man's corruption of old. For there is nothing new upon earth, nothing that may last. So this is the lesson she teaches you. To control your senses, to shun foolish self-conceit and boastfulness. To be humble enough to hide anything which might justly earn men's praise and admiration and to seek in all you do, all you enrich your knowledge with not only your own betterment, but also the honor and glory of God. She has no wish to advertise herself and her deeds, but her desire is that God may be blessed in all his gifts, all of which he showers on men simply for love. This grace is a supernatural light, a kind of special gift of God. It is the peculiar seal of those whom God has chosen and a pledge of eternal salvation, lifting a man up from the things of earth to love the things of heaven, making a spiritual man of a worldling. You see then that the more nature is kept down and overcome, 
the greater is the grace that floods a man's soul. And every day, as fresh streams of grace come to him, his inner self is being remolded until he takes on the likeness of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Angels of God, our guardians dear, to whom God's love commits us here, ever this day be at our side, to light and guard, to rule and guide. Amen. Most sacred heart of Jesus, teacher of teachers, have mercy on us. Saint Philip Neri, gentle guide of youth, mirror of the divine life, vessel of the Holy Ghost, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Until he takes on the likeness of God. Where in the scriptures do we hear this word likeness of God? In Genesis chapter 1, we read that God made man, male and female, to his image and in his likeness. That man was made to the image of God and the likeness of God. Well, when we rebelled, one way to understand what happened to our first parents is that they lost the likeness of God. They remained in the image of God, although that image of God by which they can know themselves and give themselves away and possess themselves, that image, that reflection of God in us is damaged, but not totally destroyed. But what was lost was this likeness of God by grace, this likeness of God above our nature, a supernaturalness in our first parents, by which they loved God above all things, and they loved all things in God, in which they cared only for the things of God above all else. When God is first in our lives, that's the work of grace. And that's when the likeness is restored. And so the work of Jesus Christ was to heal the image that was damaged and to restore us to the likeness of God. But he didn't just restore us. He elevated us beyond what we ever had before. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, St. Paul says. And so what is happening right now in our lives is that we're being remolded. We are taking on more and more the likeness of God. We are learning to love and to know like God loves and knows. Is this the work of one day? No. Is it the work of four days? No. And so we hear this chapter about grace and nature, grace and nature. It's a profound chapter. And what we should be feeling when we read it is that we're in both camps. There are days and moments in which grace seems to be winning out. And there are days and moments when we break down, we yield to nature. We are doing something, we are doing it for God. We weren't caring what anyone said. We weren't caring that we would get any kind of reward outside of God. And most of the day we keep it quiet. We don't say anything. And then suddenly at the last moment, we seek some kind of human praise. Well, nature is kind of asserting itself there. But grace is at work too. So in other words, we have in ourselves both dynamisms, both principles of action. Grace is urging us on and nature is urging us on. And what we want to do more and more is live by grace. We want to open ourselves more and more to this grace, this gift of God, this sharing in the very life of Jesus Christ. Come Holy Spirit, fill our hearts with grace. Allow us to respond at each moment to the impulses of grace, the streams of grace. For every time we follow that path, we increase in our likeness to God. 
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.